I'll bet for those of you who haven't yet met Nancy Brooks, you would like to. And so could I invite Nancy to come and join me on the platform? I surely hope you're with us tonight. Here's Nancy. Please say hello to her. Thank you so much. Uh, Nancy, now you've been a member of Sagemont Church for how long? Uh, Since about 2001. And when did you come to know the Lord? I was a junior in a church in Dallas. In in Dallas. And how did you hear the greatest story ever told? Well, I've been in church since, you know, cradle roll, and it was part of my growing up. And, And hearing and believing in that wonderful story of forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ changed your life, hasn't it? And um, what could somebody do who wanted to join with you in serving in Medical Bridges? Well, we're all set up right out at the mission desk right out there. Uh, We have a sign-up list where you can sign up for a Saturday or a Thursday, or you can sign up to be a part of the zip code pickup if uh, if you would be willing to pick up things in your zip code to take to Medical Bridges. Uh, All those are available right out at the mission desk after church tonight. And I think I know the answer, but let me ask it. Is there joy in serving? Of course. Absolutely. You seem to be filled with it. (laughs) Thank you. Now, Nancy, you have something in your hand. What is it? This is the award that was given to us at the banquet uh, for Medical Bridges. Uh, It says, give to the world the best you have and the best will come back to you. Medical Bridges honors Sagemont Church Group Volunteers of the Year 2006. Thank you, Nancy. Blessings to you. Can we have those that have worked or given stuff to Medical Bridges stand? Surely, those who have worked with Medical Bridges... I thought I was in charge, but... I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Just a suggestion. No, Nancy, it's a good suggestion. All those of you who have worked with Medical Bridges or... What else did you say? I have contributed things to Medical Bridges. Or who have contributed. Would you stand so we could say thank you to you? Thank you so much. Thank you, Nancy. You are a blessing. Thank you. Well, dear folks, this award which Nancy has received, she has received on behalf of you, your church, Sagemont Church. And so we want you to know that there are many opportunities here to extend the greatest story ever told. It's the same message. There's been separation from a holy God, and he built a bridge. It's through the cross. And so this is the cornerstone of all that we believe. And when you embrace what happened on the cross personally, your life is changed. And you want to return the favor and you want to give back and you want to do whatever you could to extend this greatest story ever told to all folks, just as Nancy and these others have done. Could I encourage you to continue to find your place of service here at the church? There's joy in serving and in giving. You must know that when you give, these are the kinds of ministries that this church is able to generate. And folks, when we talk about the Living Proof Project, and my understanding is there's over $3 million in it, the pastor mentioned. Listen, that's nothing to sniff at. That's more than I have under my mattress. Let me tell you. That is fantastic. So we are well on the way. You must not think it's just for a building. Shame on us if it's just for a physical 
structure, we would be remiss in that focus of attention. It's not. It's sacred. It's a means to the end of having more folks come here because we want them to hear the greatest story ever told. So we have a twofold mission. It's to build each other up. It's to enlarge our lives. It's to equip one another so that we could get out there and extend the greatest story ever told. In other words, Our mission is to be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. Thank God for folks like Nancy and the rest of you who are doing that very, very thing. We greatly appreciate you. Now, you can visit with Nancy, as she mentioned, at the missions desk. Find out more about areas of service with medical bridges. While you're out there in the foyer, not now if you don't mind, because I really would like some more of your time. But later on, if you go into the foyer, you'll see another Sagemont member, and she's an authoress, a female author, and she is Emily Ryan, and here's the book she wrote. Now, that's pretty astounding, I think, and if you go out there and purchase one of these, I'll bet she'll sign it. I didn't purchase this. I'm holding it up as a sample, but I have no intention of returning it. Let me just (laughs) go on record. Anyway, this is a wonderful book about Jephthah's daughter and the single life and how someone who is single can live to the glory of Almighty God, everybody's heavenly husband who takes him by faith. So would you go by the desk there in the foyer? Meet Emily if you don't know her. There's her beautiful profile on the cover, and she'll give you one of these books for a small, worthwhile price and sign this for you. I think that's pretty exciting to be in a church where folks are using their manifold gifts all for the glory of God. Folks, we must do it because he gave us a message in the Bible. And the message in the Bible says, you cannot outgive me. I love you without stop. And I've given you an inexpressible gift, my only begotten son. And when you take him as your savior, you'll never, ever be the same. Now, we know that message to be true because it's in God's written word to us, the Bible. Now, we've been through a series thus far on the Bible because it's one of our foundations. So this is called the Foundations Series, the bedrock of what we believe here and the Uh, One of the most important aspects of what we believe has to do with the Bible. So in weeks past, we've spoken of its special character. And I tried to demonstrate to you that it is reliable. There's no error in it because it's been inspired by a perfect God. And he does not inspire an erroneous product. I tried to demonstrate last time that based on the volumes of manuscript evidence, you can know that when you read the Bible, it's trustworthy, it is reliable. You ought to submit to it and yield to it because you're on solid ground. And tonight, I'd like to develop this theme of the reliability of the Bible just a little further by speaking to you, not of the manuscript evidence as we did last week, but tonight, two things, fulfilled prophecy and historical 
accuracy, I just want to persuade you that the Bible is not something written by mere men. It's inspired by God, written, uh, breathed out by him through men and preserved down to this very day so that what we have is the very message God wants for us to receive. One of the evidences of the reliability of the Bible is fulfilled prophecy. Did you know the Bible makes predictions? It makes statements with regard to events that have not yet occurred. In fact, hundreds of times in the 66 books of the Bible, we find predictions about future events. Most have already been fulfilled. The remaining ones are yet to be fulfilled. And the odds, think of this, the odds of all of the predictions, all of the prophecies in the Bible being fulfilled by chance, tell me if you have enough faith to buy this, is about one in 10 to the 2,000th power. So that means, think of the number 10 and add to it 2,000 zeros, one in that big old number is the chance that the prophecies in the Bible just happened without system and order and design. Now, if you believe that, you have a whole lot more faith than I do. They're not just chance occurrence. The predictions and prophecies of the Bible can be counted on and are certain of fulfillment because of the author of the Bible, Almighty God, and he does not lie. So could I just give you just a few, a sampling of some of the predictions in the Bible that have already taken place. 500 years before the time of Jesus Christ, a predictor, a prophet, named Daniel, wrote in chapter 9 of the book by the same name, chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, Daniel predicted that the Messiah would begin his public ministry, get this, 483 years after a decree was issued to restore Jerusalem. The decree permitting the restoration of Jerusalem was, was issued by Persia's king, modern-day Iran, Persia's king, Artaxerxes, in 458 B.C. And 483, not 481, not 482, 483 years later, this Jesus of Nazareth began his public ministry in Galilee. Chance occurrence? You have more faith than I do. Daniel also predicted that the Messiah would be killed and that his death would take place prior to a second destruction of Jerusalem. In AD 70, Jerusalem was in fact destroyed by the Roman general Titus. And of course, Jesus was crucified before this. In 700 BC, Micah said Bethlehem, Bethlehem, house of bread, would be the very birthplace of the Messiah. And of course, we know that the New Testament record indicates that, in fact, is where Jesus was born, in fulfillment of Micah's prophecy of 700 years earlier. It has been pointed out that by the law of chance, it would require, get this, 200 billion, not million, billion earths, each populated 
with four billion people in order to come up with just one person who could fulfill just 100 predictions in the Bible. But Jesus has fulfilled far in excess of a mere 100. In Christ's coming alone, there were over 300 prophecies fulfilled. Those are just prophecies, as I mentioned, dealing with his first coming. Here are some more, for instance. In the 5th century BC, Zechariah... By the way, you don't have to remember this. I don't. It's written down over here. I won't remember it 15 minutes later. That's not the point. The point is, I just want you to be overwhelmed with certainty that the message of the Bible is true. It's without error. It is solid ground. We must not add to it nor diminish it. Don't buy anything you're hearing from critics with reference to discrepancies, errors, and defects in the Bible. It's simply not true. In the 5th century BC, Zechariah predicted that the Messiah would be betrayed for the price of a slave. What do you think the price is? How many pieces of silver? Yeah, 30 pieces of silver. And he also predicted, Zechariah did, that the money would be used to buy a burial ground for Jerusalem's poor. And of course, you know that the gospel writers indicate this is exactly what happened centuries later. 400 years before crucifixion was invented. It didn't always exist, you know, crucifixion. Probably you think the Romans came up with the idea, but they did not. The Persians did. The Romans simply perfected this terrible torture. 400 years before crucifixion came to be, Israel's King David and Israel's prophet Zechariah described that this would be the form of Messiah's death. And they did so in words which perfectly depict this mode of execution, though it did not come into existence until 400 years after the prediction. Stoning was what the Jews were familiar with, not piercing through on a pole, not on an old rugged cross. They also prophesied that the body of the Messiah would be pierced through and that in the process none of his bones would be broken. Folks, that is contrary to the normal crucifixion procedure in which the bones of the victim are in fact broken. You can read about this In Psalm 22, some call it the Psalm of the Cross because it will describe death by crucifixion and piercing suffered by the Lord Jesus. You can read about it in Psalm 34, verse 20, and in Zechariah 12, 10. They will look upon him whom they have stoned. No, pierced. But death by piercing didn't even then exist. Isaiah predicted that there would be one day a conqueror named Cyrus. He would destroy Babylon. What country, what modern day country is Babylon located in? Yeah, Iraq, Iraq. Something's going on even beyond, don't you think, greater than just politics and all the rest. So many events have transpired in Iraq. Babylon, ancient Babylon was there. Isaiah predicted Cyrus would destroy it and then go on to conquer Egypt and most uh, of the rest of the known world. He also said that Cyrus would let the Jewish exiles would go free. And this was predicted 150 years before Cyrus was born. But history tells us that is exactly what happened. 
Babylon, ancient Babylon, was almost impregnable. It was enclosed by a moat and surrounded by two very thick walls. It was said to be absolutely indestructible, but Isaiah and Jeremiah said, no way, it's going down. And not only that, it would never be largely inhabited again. Those who serve uh, us so proudly in Iraq and then return, those who've had a chance to tour in Iraq on some R&R have gone to see the spot of ancient Babylon. Nobody lives there. Saddam Hussein, the crazed, egomaniacal, uh, Satan-inspired prior ruler of Iraq had intentions of rebuilding it, you see, to its prior glory. But the, Isaiah said it won't happen. It'll be destroyed, laid low, and uninhabited. And it is down to this very day. Prophets of the Old Testament and the Lord Jesus himself predicted that ancient Israel would be conquered two times and that the people would be carried off as slaves each time. The first time would be by the Babylonians for 70 years. The second would be by a fourth world kingdom, which we now know to have been Rome. It happened in A.D. 70. It was also predicted that the Jews would remain scattered throughout the entire world for many generations, but would then return to the land in order to reestablish their nation. Folks, in May of 1948, that prediction was fulfilled. The modern state of Israel was reestablished. By the way, when the modern state of Israel was reestablished, that began the intifada or the uprising. You see, the fulfillment of this prophecy and the Jews coming back into the land sticks into the throat of Muslim people because the Quran, the Muslim holy book, indicates that because of the disobedience of the Jews, he's taken their promises and removed them. And then because of the disobedience of the Christians... God, too, has taken all those promises meant for the church and removed them. So he's taken the promises of the Old Testament given to the Jews and the promises of the New Testament given to the Christians, and he's given them to the Muslims. And that's why the dome of the rock sits above the holiest spot in Judaism, the Wailing Wall, and the holiest spot in Orthodox Christianity, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And that's why World War III would come about if anyone tried to take control of that temple mount on which sits that beautiful uh, golden-domed mosque. So 1948, when this prophecy was fulfilled, that began this uh, almost insane hatred of the Jews and intent to drive them into the sea. Why? The fact that the Jews are in the land and prospering disproves the prophet Muhammad and the Quran, which said God has removed his plan for the Jews and cursed them. If you visit Israel today, they don't look cursed. The land is literally flowing with a kind of milk and honey They've made the desert to bloom. There are palm trees in the desert. It's the world's finest irrigation system. Tulips grow in the desert. It's the world's, not Holland, world's number one exporter of tulips of all things. It's surrounded by 22 oil-rich Arab nations. They ain't making it so good. So you've got to drive these puny little Jews. They ain't much bigger than me. You've got to... <laughs> 
<laughs> you got to drive them into the sea because it really doesn't look like God has taken his hand off of the apple of his eye. It doesn't look like that even in spite of the Jews, he has broken his covenant with them. Good night. The covenant is unilateral. The covenant through Abraham that he would give them land and bless them has nothing to do with their obedience any more than the new covenant by which we are saved has to do with our obedience. It has to do with God's grace. And so you see this very prediction fulfilled in our day proves the Bible and disproves the Quran. Please don't be like some of our politicians who have stated regularly, I do not believe Jesus is the only way. All roads lead to Rome. Well, that sounds good. It's politically correct, but it's spiritually incorrect. The Bible has been proven by predictions to be reliable, but that cannot be said of the Book of Mormon or the Quran. I mean no disrespect. I'm just stating objective truth. The predictions in the Quran have proven to be false. The predictions in the Bible have been fulfilled. Joshua predicted that Jericho, you heard of it? Joshua at the Battle of Jericho. Sing with me. He predicted that Jericho would be rebuilt by a particular man. Get this. He also, Joshua, predicted, he said that the man's oldest son would die when the reconstruction of Jericho began and that his youngest son would die when it was completed. If you have your Bible, you don't have to do this, but if you have it, turn to Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. I just want to read this to you. Joshua 6, Verse 26, it's fascinating. Joshua 6, verse 26. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation and With the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. That's a prediction by one of God's predictors or prophets, Joshua. Now if you turn to 1 Kings chapter 16, 1 Kings chapter 16, and though we are in a relaxed way uh, turning from Joshua to 1 Kings, you're traveling about 500 years now on your little journey. From the text in Joshua to 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34, 500 years has passed. Just a few moments for us, but I'm telling you, chronologically, 500 years. Later, it says in 1 Kings 16, verse 34, in his days, he, El, the Bethelite, built Jericho. He laid its foundations, look what it says, with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. A very precise and specific prediction 500 years prior, and a very precise and specific fulfillment of it 500 years later. Folks, if you covered the great state of Texas, the promised land, with quarters two feet deep, think about it. This is a big state, is it not? Uh, One of our deacons told me the other day, 
that um, it's a shorter distance from the northern border of Texas to Canada than from the northern border of Texas to the southern border of Texas. I don't know if it's true. It was a deacon who told me that. <laughs> you got to be careful. But I think it is. It's like a big state, right? It's a whole lot bigger than Louisiana, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I didn't say better. It's just bigger. If you covered this huge republic with quarters two feet deep and marked the back of just one of them with an X, then if you flew a man, say from Ellington, above it, blindfolded him and pushed him out of the plane with a parachute, anywhere you want to in the entire state, and asked him when he landed, still blindfolded, to find the quarter with the X on it on his first try, folks, that is the same statistical chance of just eight of the Bible's prophecies being fulfilled by coincidence. Don't you see? God knows we would waver and we would question and we would wonder whether we could put our confidence in his promises for God so loved the world that he gave his only one-of-a-kind begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. But here's the alternative, have eternal life. (gasps) You're going to stake your eternity on a promise in the Bible. God knows we have to be sure the promise can be counted on that scripture is reliable. So he gave us all of these hundreds of promises and predictions to remove any doubt that by sheer chance occurrence they could be fulfilled. They could not. The scriptures are reliable, folks. We have tons of manuscript evidence to support it. And now I gave you the second proof, tons of fulfilled prophecy. Let me take just a few more moments of your time and give you a third proof for the reliability of the scriptures. Historical accuracy. Historical accuracy. It has been said for many years that this character known as Pontius Pilate didn't exist. He was a fictional character, is invented, dreamed up by biblical writers as a kind of a bad guy villain. You know, every good story needs a villain in it. So Pilate was just dreamed up, but he doesn't exist. No historical verification for the existence of Pilate, so say they. And then archaeologists found in Israel something called the Pilate Stone. Some of us here were there in May, Betty, remember? Were you well that day? I think you were well that day. Yeah, because some of, some of our members got sick. They had bad attitudes, and so they got sick. <laughs> Betty, I think that... But anyway... We were in Caesarea, Caesarea, and saw a replica of the Pilate stone that said right on it in Greek, Pilate, verification of the existence. Now look it. If you're inhabited by the very Spirit of God, you don't need that to give you assurance that your faith is well-placed. I just don't want you to take a back seat to the so-called smart people of the day who think we're a bunch of country bumpkins Uh, to surrender all to the Lord Jesus. Oh no, it's the wisest, most reasonable, most rational, smartest decision a person can make. I surrender all because what he says is true. He's the God of all truth. Daniel writes of a guy named Belshazzar who was a king. 
But the critics of the Bible said, no way, error in the Bible. No such record of a Babylonian king known as Belshazzar. They said the king at the time Daniel wrote was a guy named Nabonides and that the Bible therefore was an error. It was wrong. Therefore, don't put your confidence in it. And yet in 1956, relatively modern day, a Babylonian chronicle, a record was discovered revealing that Nabonides, the king, left his throne for some reason for a 10-year period and that another king named Belshazzar replaced him for that 10-year period as king. Folks, you know what the smart people are doing, the archaeologists, the historians? They're just doing everything they could to catch up with the Bible. It took them till 1956 to find out that God doesn't lie. The book of Jonah says that Jonah was sent to the city of Nineveh. What country is that in? It's in Iraq again. Isn't that something? Jonah was sent to this place in Nineveh. And the smart folks, the archaeologists, you know, got nothing to do but sit around and criticize the Bible. They said there was absolutely no evidence of a city called Nineveh. And so therefore, for a long time, skeptics scoffed and said the Bible, once again, was fictitious, in error, unreliable, made up this city called Nineveh. But then archaeologists discovered Nineveh. You could go there, though I don't exactly recommend it at the moment. But you could go there to Nineveh. You ever hear of a group of people called the Hittites? Hittites? The Old Testament speaks of a group of folks called the Hittites. But historians for years and years said they don't exist. We can't find any record of a people group known as the Hittites. I know they're, only, they're mentioned in the Bible, but since we have no other verification of it, extra biblical support, therefore the Bible ain't true. And so they called the accuracy of the Bible into question for years and years. And then in 1906... Archaeologists unearthed the capital city of the Hittite nation. They kept on digging. And they found not only the capital city, but 40 different Hittite cities revealing a Hittite empire just as it is recorded in the Bible. Folks, there's ample manuscript evidence. We have full copies of every New Testament book. <laughs> we have the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in 1947 verifying the accuracy of Old Testament books. We have the Bible translated in all kinds of languages. We have partial fragments extant or in existence today. You lay them all out, you compare them. The variation from translation to translation is minor and few. No major point of doctrine or core belief is in question whatsoever. In addition, we have predictions, hundreds of them, which have been fulfilled with precise historic accuracy. And thirdly, we have historical accuracy in the Bible. It tells the truth because its author is the God of all truth. And there's a message in the Bible. The theme of it all is the centrality of the cross upon which Jesus died. The Old Testament books look forward to it. <laughs> and the New Testament books look back upon it. It's the central core belief. It's the fundamental belief that unites us as Christians in spite of collateral differences. It happened 
It's true. The message of the God of the Bible is, you owe me a debt you cannot pay. I am holy, unapproachably so, and you are sinful in every aspect of your being, thought, word, and deed. No religion, no human effort, no meritorious conduct could satisfy my righteous demands. I demand holiness. I am holy. You shall be holy. That's the message of the Bible. And you know every day when you wake up and look in the mirror and comb your hair, you know you're looking at an unholy person. You don't need some preacher to lay that trip on you. Listen to your conscience of Ten Commandments. How many have you perfectly kept? But he doesn't grade on a curve, this God. He said, these are the commandments. And when he gave them, it thundered on Mount Sinai. It was a fearful day in enterprise. The Bible records it, not as a pleasant experience, because God didn't give suggestions. He didn't say, eight out of ten will do. Ten out of ten, or you're a sinner. And you must pay the penalty for your sin because this God of the Bible tells us he's just and there must be justice. And then the Bible tells us that justice is not his only attribute. Mercy is as well. So the just God who is unapproachably holy, categorically different, can't even be tempted by sin. We're comfortable with it. It's familiar to us, but he's untainted, undefiled by it. He's wholly apart. He's the great other. (laughs) This just and holy God, the Bible describes as a consuming fire, says... As far as the east is from the west, I have a willingness to remove your transgressions from you. This God of the Bible says, I'm willing to take all your sins and cast them behind my back. Oh, I know they're there. I simply won't retrieve them and let them be a barrier between you and me. And this God of the Bible said, I will satisfy my just requirements of the laws written In his holy book, the Bible, I will do it by sending to you the perfect mediator on the divine side. He's the son of God and on the human side, he's the son of man. Please don't make Christianity look like a mere religion. Not a one has God who's come to be enfleshed and taken the form of man. Jesus did. And in so doing, he becomes the perfect bridge anchored on this side and can relate to us as human beings. He lived here, experienced hunger and fatigue and thirst and not everything. He didn't experience sin because he, while being fully man, was fully God. And on the divine side, he was God's only begotten son. Nobody is like him. And so the father said on this marvelous bridge called the cross, come to me, who all who are weary, burdened by this load of sin, which you cannot atone for. 
Come to me and I'll not give you an angry, wrathful uh, sermon. I'll give you rest, which will begin now and on into eternity. Real rest, because you'll be at peace with me. You'll know me not as judge. You'll know me as Abba, Father. You'll never be the same. The Bible tells me this is true. And I know the Bible to be true. Manuscript evidence, fulfilled prophecy, historical accuracy, the testimony of people like Nancy Brooks and Emily Ryan who just say, Oh, Lord Jesus, how I love you. For you have first loved me. Take my offerings and use it, whatever they may be, for your glory. The greatest testimony for the reality of Jesus Christ and the truthfulness of the Bible are converted followers of Jesus Christ. Don't you love him more than anything? Don't you want to surrender all for the Lord Jesus Christ who gave you his all? Could I ask you to bow your heads? Would you allow the Lord Jesus to search your hearts in the next few moments that we have together? I wonder if you could even sense him speaking to you even in the silence. Christians, is there something you have to settle with your Lord? Is there something you really need to lay at the foot of the cross? Those who are guests tonight, I really apologize to you for what we have in Christ is really not yours just yet, is it? But thank you for looking in on the Christian life. We're filled to overflow with joy unspeakable, so too could you be. We're forgiven ones thoroughly imperfect but forgiven do you know what it feels like to have a pardon from almighty God I wonder if even as your head is bowed and your eyes are closed maybe you'll hear his voice saying come to me I'm willing to be your savior tonight Lord Jesus would you have your way this evening would you search our hearts in the power of your Holy Spirit and would you move us to response according to your will and this we pray in Jesus name amen wonder if i could